living kind of very kind of scientific rationalistic kind of thinking what kind of fool what kind of fool would believe in life after death in resurrection now christians we don't even talk about this much at the moment either i mean it's kind of a muted subject we will talk about the cross a lot but the resurrection certainly seems secondary in our, in our vocabulary in fact in I think Christians often seem quite embarrassed that God claims to have power over death. Uh, Despite the fact that when we read in the historical accounts in the Gospels, in John's Gospel, chapter 11, we read of Jesus going to see a friend who'd been dead and laying in the grave for a few days and raising him to new life, Lazarus. So why are Christians quite quiet, slightly embarrassed about the subject of resurrection. Two quick reasons, I think, just to begin with. Firstly, anyone can get crucified. You just have to rile a Roman, you know, just give him a little poke, you know, and you'd be on a cross quite quickly. Say something about Caesar that they didn't like, you're on a cross. It just in purely physical terms, people, many, many, many people were crucified. Uh, But resurrection, well, that's quite a, it's a bit more of an exclusive club, isn't it? And Christians, I guess, are quite quiet on the subject of resurrection because it challenges so much that we know in this world, doesn't it? Now, science tries to explain many, many things and does a wonderful job in so many ways um, of explaining the world around us, the beauty, the order of the world around us. But it can't explain, can it? The very thing that we all clamour for answers about. That is life and death itself. But the resurrection, see, is the evidence that, that Jesus is above all of that. He's beyond all of that. That is, he's, he's divine. He's supremely powerful. If you like, he's in a category of his own. Science is so far in comparison to him. Resurrection, of course, it's the supreme act of power, isn't it? Because it's the defeat of death, the very power that all of us cannot defeat. Science can't explain it, but nor, given the evidence that we'll see in 1 Corinthians 15, can science disprove it. But Christians, we know the flack, don't we, that we will receive if we start talking a little bit too much in the pub about resurrection. We know we're going to get some stick. And that's why we keep this wonderful truth quiet sometimes. I've been guilty of it. I guess some of you have too. Second reason why I think resurrection um, is is, is a subject which we we don't talk about enough about. I think it's because it's just not taught enough uh, within the church. Um, And I think there's a reason behind that as well. You see, the the resurrection sets up a life that's to be lived, looking forward to a day with reference to a day that is to come. The resurrection of all of us. And we live in the light of that day. So as Christians, we trust that in in Jesus Christ raising to new life, we trust that one day we too will be raised to new life. To see God face to face in eternity. One of the songs we we, we just sung had a line of that, being with God in glory. Uh, sometimes theologians call it, it's, it's the beatific vision. It's the seeing God face to face. There's nothing greater. It's the experience, the only experience that even to want it begins to transform us today. 
The hope of resurrection changes us now. And Christians know that. And maybe if you're not a Christian, you've seen that in your Christian friends. It changes us. It challenges us. It transforms us. Let me just put it this way. I read this on holiday. Uh, listen to the hope of glory and, and, if you like, how it changes someone. This great Puritan writer, that's a, many hundred years ago, a man called John Flavel, he, he, he said this, the understanding can know no more. That's what glory is like. The will can know... Um, The will can will nothing other. The emotions of joy, delight and love are all in their proper centre. For all good is in its chief good. And he goes on, listen to this. All that delights you in earthly things can never satisfy you. For all of your desires are in God. The comforts you have here are only drops in flaming, not satisfying the appetites of your soul. But the land will lead you to fountains of living water. And what Favela is saying there, he's saying you were made, you were created by God. And you have these wonderful desires in you. Dreams, you know, intellectually, physically, even sexually, in every sphere of your life. But what we are all looking for, whether that be in love, in, in relationships, in work, just in daily living... We get just tasters in this life. But if you notice, they're never truly satisfied. I mean, you could be in the most wonderful marriage, but it's never perfect. You can go on the most wonderful holiday, but uh, the sun doesn't quite set as you want it. See, the resurrection, you see, it secures the very thing that we're designed for. To fulfill every one of our deepest longings. That is to be with God face to face. As Revelation says, to drink of the river of life. C.S. Lewis put it this way, it's a beautiful thing. We want something in all of our other passions that can hardly be put into words. To be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it. To become part of it. You see, again, he's saying a similar thing. God has given us, in his kindness, glimmers of the glory to come. Pleasures that we know today, but they're samples. They're tasters of what we will know as resurrected and glorified people. So you see, the resurrection should be right front and centre of the Christian faith. For that may be quite hard to fathom. Someone rising to new life. I mean, wow. It should define our lives now if we're Christians. And it, should, it secures our eternity with God face to face. When all of those desires that we all have very naturally will be fully and finally met. Now 1 Corinthians 15 is, is I guess, one of the greatest pastoral sermons on this very subject of resurrection life. Uh, it's one of Paul's letters to a church in a place called Corinth. Um, and it, it defines resurrection life now, but it, it points us to, towards the end of all life. And it, it was clearly a problem in the church in Corinth. And you can see that if you cast your eyes down to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. You see, it's just... It's a problem for some, but he then he teaches everyone. Look at it. He says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say, just some, 
that there's no resurrection of the dead. And what he does is said, I'm going to take that opportunity. Some of you don't understand this. I'll teach you all. And we're part of that. And that's good because we all need teaching. And the chapter warns, it encourages, it instructs. Um, resurrection, uh, it, it points it and says, this is a reality for all of us. And therefore, it's an essential part of the Christian gospel that we need to know and understand. Let me give you some background, if you can, to uh, the Corinthian church. Essentially, there, there were some people within the church in Corinth, as we've seen there, just some who didn't believe that they were Christians. They, they, they understood and put their faith in Jesus Christ, but they didn't believe that they would be resurrected at the end of life. They assumed that they were already sharing in the resurrection of life of Jesus. They thought this was, this was kind of it with their bodies. Uh, and like many of the issues in Corinth, which you can read if you look back in earlier chapters, they were kind of over-realising, overstating what life now really was. Uh, the, the, it's called the age of the spirit. That is the time between when Jesus first came and to when he returns as judge. They were kind of overstating what that life really should be like. They were over-realising an age. Uh, that, and it manifests itself in, in all sorts of issues within the church. They, they just thought their bodies could be done with. I mean, to use a kind of a lily, it's like a disposable nappy. Disgusting. But, you know, let's just have it and then let's chuck it out. That's how the Corinthians thought of their bodies. That's... Let's do with it as we please and get rid of it um, at the end of this life. And, and therefore, the Corinthians said, if you go back to chapter 6, they'd abuse themselves with all kind of sexual practices and, and all kind of food problems in chapters 10 and 11. They'd done all sorts of things because they thought the body, that was it, the end of this life. They'd over-realized this age. They, they thought, in a sense, there's nothing better to look forward to. So Paul, what he does here, he dedicates the longest chapter of any of his writings to this subject of resurrection and of, of this age that we live waiting for the final resurrection. And 1 Corinthians, if you look cast down at your eyes there, you'll see it's divided into three of, uh, parts, uh, very helpfully put by our, our kind of paragraph headings there in our Bibles. We're going to look at those over the next three weeks. So in the first section in verses 1 to 11, Paul deals with the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. And that's, he really does that to show its integral position within the gospel message itself. Second section, verse 12 through to verse 34, Paul writes of the resurrection of the dead and shows that must result from having faith in that resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then in the last section, verses 35 to 58, Paul then kind of pushes on and shows, uh, if you like, talks more about the resurrection body. But he concludes with this wonderful assurance of what it is to be resurrected. A victory over death comes. Let's dive into the passage, though. And let's begin by looking uh, at the Corinthians and their beliefs uh, that Jesus Christ, uh, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, central to that gospel, is that resurrection. They have taken a stand on this gospel. Have a look at it in verse 1 and 2. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. We get to our, our kind of first main point there. You see, we're going to push on very quickly now, so don't panic. Um, tea and coffee will be soon. What Paul is trying to do, he's not trying to prove 
that resurrection occurred. Have you noticed that? He doesn't feel the need to do it. It was assumed. The evidence was too great. He's not trying to distinguish it from resuscitation of Jesus or anything like that. Or some magic trick or some Roman conspiracy as some people would have. No. It's an assumed historical effect. What Paul is trying to do though here is, is place resurrection in its proper place as this integral part to the gospel, the good news message of the Christian faith, of which we just pray for Lily. But have they believed in vain? Look at verse 2, that's what Paul assumes. And what these two verses do, just to begin with, very quickly, they offer a reminder, it's a kind of sobering warning as this chapter begins. It's like a sermon in a sense. He's saying this, he's saying, hold firmly to these truths, or believe in vain. There's not really an alternative. Hold firm or believe in vain. They were not holding on to this simple truth of the gospel. The, the gospel that they believed and received at one point. This gospel message through faith, which critically it says here, saves us for all that glory we mentioned at the, at the beginning. And the question I guess we need to ask ourselves is, do you believe in vain? That is, you can come to church every week of your life. It, you can exhibit all these qualities of a mature Christian. Like, you know, we pray for Alida. Thank God that she sang at the front of church and she did this and she did that. I'm not saying this of you, Alida, but yeah, we, we can all do those things. We can exhibit these qualities that seem like we're mature Christians. We go to the right place. We do the right things. But Paul is saying here, if you do not hold firm to this gospel message, which I'm about to explain to you, you will not be saved. You've believed in vain. And that is what Paul is saying. He's saying the gospel, you need to receive it, believe it, hold firmly to it, and therefore by faith be saved by it. Now these, I guess, these verses, one, two, they, they kind of, they act as the, the introduction, they, kind of, they show us the power of what we're dealing with here, the power of the gospel. The, the gospel actually late, earlier in 1 Corinthians is described as a power. But now the following verses, three onwards, they articulate, they kind of spell out what the gospel really is, which is of first importance we see in verse three. Look at that. What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And you notice verse 3 begins with that little kind of connected word, for there. Do you see that? And it's linking back to the holding firmly to the word of the gospel in verse 2. So you see, it is, it is that gospel word that, brought, that, that Paul is now going to spell out, that they need to hold firmly to. And note it's a word gospel. It's not a gospel that you come and say, I want to experience. It comes to you in words. That is, you need to engage your brains. You need to understand this gospel message. And it's of first importance. That is, there's no greater priority in Paul's life here. You know, he was a, his work was of tent making to, to earn his keep. Uh, but that's not first importance, the money he earned. Nor any of his relationships or, or you know, his income, his, his family. They all came a feeble second, third, whatever it may be. But what makes this word of the gospel 
so important? What's the content? And here we get to points, those two points, uh, uh, 2A and 2B there. Here's the gospel spelt out by Paul. Now, some of you know this. Many of you do very well. Let's just listen again, though. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. What strikes you about that? What struck me is just the utter simplicity of it. How often, so I speak for Christians here, how often do we, if someone says, yeah, what do you really believe? We, we speak for hours. We overcomplicate everything. We try to intellectualize everything. It's simple here. Of course, as Christians, we need to work really hard, don't we, in a culture where people are pretty resistant to hearing this message. We need to work hard to, to explain this message to people. Of course we do. But we can't clutter this simple message. Christ died. He was buried. He was raised according to the scriptures. If you add, what do you do? You take away. And for many of us, a key to the gospel message, of course, is Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And that is right. Christ died for sins. That is true. But it's not the whole story, which is why 1 Corinthians 15 is here. The, the, the cross, of course, is the start of God's rescue plan. And our gospel focus, my gospel, is usually there, isn't it? At the cross of Jesus Christ, where my sin, my, where my rebellion against God is dealt with. Wonderful. That sacrifice on the cross of himself bears a punishment that I deserve for every time I've turned my back on God, even if ignored God. That cross, that sacrificing of his blood, satisfies God's anger for my dirty life, to be honest. It appeases a just judgment for my sin. Essentially what happens on a cross is a very simple, it's a divine swap in a sense. As we receive Jesus' perfect life, we legally justify, the word is justification, we legally receive his righteousness, his right life, and the swap occurs that he gets our dirty life and is punished accordingly. When God looks upon me, and many of us have here, at the end of our lives, he sees only the perfect righteous life of Jesus Christ. If we have come to him, come to this gospel, simple gospel message through faith. See, the gospel is that Christ died for our sins. And secondly, we see he was buried. Do you notice that? He was buried. Why did he put that? Well, because it's the evidence of the death. You don't bury one of your mates, do you, if you think they're alive? Maybe you do, but I wouldn't do that personally if they were a friend of mine. You don't bury also someone who caused so much social unrest Unless you thought they were well and truly dead. Jesus was dead. And the Romans, either the Romans or the disciples, would never have allowed it any other way that he would need to be buried. He couldn't be alive. The Romans even speared his side to make sure that that was true. Jesus was dead, so he was buried. The death is evidenced by the burial. But that is essentially just part one of the gospel. Jesus died, evidenced in the burial. 
Now, Paul, you see, he was accused elsewhere of separating or preaching two Gospels. In Acts 17, verse 18, you can read it later if you want, make a note of it. Um, he was accused of preaching Jesus and then secondly, resurrection. He's kind of, they were accusing him of dividing the Gospel. And what he's doing here in 1 Corinthians, he's saying, no, it's part of the same Gospel. There's part one, Christ died, evidenced by his burial. Now let's get to part two. But notice, if you can, that every section of this, this word that Paul is passing to the Corinthians begins with the same phrase. So you notice that, that Christ died. You see that? That he was buried. That he was raised. See, Paul is using the same preposition there to show that these statements of the gospel belong together. They unite, they're, they're all focused around who? Christ. It's obvious. Christ died. Christ was buried. Christ was raised. So our first section is like, he, he died, crucial evidence is he was buried. The second gospel foundation that he was raised. So to be there, the gospel, Christ was raised. And you can see he was raised to new life elsewhere. In the original language, it basically says, he has been raised. There's a kind of a continued present, uh, kind of continuous kind of nature to the tense there. And he's saying, that means he's alive still. That's the implication. He was raised to live and reigns today and will one day come to judge. That's the implication of the resurrection. But his resurrection is also our hope of new life through this grace, this mercy that we're going to look at in just a moment. It's the assurance that many of us here have, that resurrection life. But looking at myself, I recognise that I don't always see the resurrection. Like 2B and these points here isn't quite as emphasised as much as 2A in my thinking and in my kind of spelling out of the gospel. And maybe that's true for you if you're a Christian today. Of course, in my heart, my kind of crooked mind, I'd rather concentrate on the freedom that I have now in Christ because of what he's done on the cross, that my sins have been dealt with. My, in a sense, my, my eyes are selfishly focusing on myself on the gain that I get. But if by faith we're bound to the resurrected one through faith, we not only become united to him in his death, but we also now have a life to live with him, bound to him. And as many of other Paul letters say, we therefore need to throw off an old life and live a new resurrected life for him, giving him glory, pointing others to the glory that we know. And the hope we have in our hearts. Died, buried, raised. And all we see there according to the scriptures. I won't say too much about this. But that is simply to say. The Old Testament foretold this. Hundreds of years before. You know the suffering servant in Isaiah. Yeah that's Jesus. In Psalm 16. uh, Jesus was foretold as the one. Whose body would not see decay. That's because he was resurrected, according to the scriptures. So Christ's death is evidence in his burial, but Christ's resurrection, we go on now in verses 5 to 8, uh, was evidenced in his appearing. There's kind of these two, these dual things here, aren't there? We come down to there, Christ appeared. Now the resurrection, it's a miracle, and it's hard to believe, but the problem is if you're a skeptic here, look at the evidence. Look at the evidence. How many people did he appear to? Cast your eyes down in verse 5 to 8. You'll see on one occasion, 500 of the brothers. That doesn't include the sisters. So there's probably a lot more there. 
And that's only just one occasion. You see, the gospel would be superficial. It would be weakened beyond belief if there was no substantial evidence to Christ's resurrection. But you see... In this resurrection, in these appearings that we read about in verses 5 to 8, it's kind of, it's the objective reality of the resurrection. In a sense, Jesus is saying, now what are you going to do about that? I appeared to all of these people. Now what are you going to do about me now? What are you going to do? The evidence is there. Jesus Christ was resurrected. He not only appeared to one person as we see, and we reckon on all the occasions we, we know both in, not in biblical history, but elsewhere in many other histories as well, we reckon he appeared over a period of a month to well over a thousand people. Are there any counter histories against that? No. No Roman, no Jew, no Greek. historian ever said, oh, these Christians are making up this big conspiracy that Jesus was raised from dead and has appeared to them. No, no one wrote that. There's a lot of evidence to the, for the fact of this resurrection through these appearings. So we see the miracle of resurrection. The second foundation of the gospel is evidenced by this appearing to so many. Even better, he appeared to those who could still testify um, to these occurrence when this letter was written. So that there would have been people writing saying, this poor guy is written to a church in Corinth and he's writing a load of rubbish. But they didn't. Because it was true. Including Paul himself. And although his appearing we see in verse 8 was unique. He, he describes it as one as abnormally born. We won't go into that now. But he is one who could testify to the truth of Jesus Christ being resurrected. Let's conclude. The gospel is that Christ died and was raised. The evidence ratifies this united gospel message, so that we, such that we have no reason to doubt it. We have no reason, if we're Christians here today, not to share it in its entirety. We have no reason not to receive it and believe it, because Christ did these things. And, as we see in verse 2, we know that that saves. We see how it was received as we close. Look at that in our third point, just to finish. The gospel received by grace. I'm going to very quickly skirt over this. It's getting very hot in here and uh, we're nearing the end of our time. You see in verse uh, 9, Paul admits that he has once persecuted the Christians. Do you note that? In a sense he's saying, this gospel message which I know saves, I'm the least deserving of it. And I wonder, if you're anything like me, there'll be days in your own heart if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you might even be saying... I can't receive this. I can't believe this. I'm too mucky. I mess up too much. I'm just not the right kind of person for church or Christianity or this Christian gospel. Look at verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. You see, the, the undeserved kindness of God, that's the grace there opens up my heart, my mind, and yours too, to see the truth of this gospel message, to see the glory of the resurrection life now, and what it points to what it will be in the future. See, that all these tasters that we, that we clamour for today will become as they are intended, 
foretaste of the most beautiful intimacy, the most secure life, the most wonderful purpose and joy when we know God face to face for eternity, resurrected and glorified. All, all my guilt, all our troubles, which stand us, stand so many of us, with distance between us and God and push us away from God, they will go, they will be stripped away. And all we need to, to, to receive that and believe that is, is this grace, to accept this undeserved kindness of a gospel which comes through a word that we've been looking at tonight. Christ died, evidenced in his burial. Christ was raised, evidenced in his appearing. All of that according to the scriptures. That is foretold and predicted. Can I ask you, if you're not a Christian, what is stopping you? What is stopping you believing and receiving this message? A couple of questions to finish. The Church of Jesus Christ stands, as they did in verse 1, because of this gospel. And if you're a Christian here today, when mockery and persecution come, and they will do, as you declare this gospel to others, my question is this, will you stand? Or will you believe in vain? My second question is this. The church of Jesus Christ is saved through this gospel. As we see in verse 2, it's a saving message. That Christ died, buried, raised, appeared. And my question to those of you perhaps who aren't Christians is, do you have a personal faith in this gospel message? And if you don't, then, then think. You've heard it. You've read the evidence of Jesus' death and resurrection that it saves all who believe or put their faith in this message. And if you don't believe that, I beg you to consider the truth. Speak to me afterwards if you'd like to. It would be a great joy and pleasure. And if you do have a personal faith, then know this gospel. Know this gospel power. Share it. This resurrection life of, of glory that we're looking forward to, evidenced in the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. As John Flavel said, let me finish with those words I read to you earlier. All that delights you in earthly things can never satisfy you. For all of your desires are in God. I hope they are. Let's pray that they are. The comforts you have here are only drops in flaming, not satisfying the appetites of your soul. But he says, the Lamb, that is the Lord Jesus, he is the one who will lead you to fountains of living water. That is what the resurrection leads us to, those fountains of living water. Are you looking forward to them? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it does seem so simple that this, this gospel, this word that we've mentioned, this good news of Jesus Christ, that he died, was buried, raised, and then appeared. This gospel message, if we put our faith in it, 
saves us. It is a gift that we receive by grace. We do not deserve it. And yet we know and we trust in your word. And I pray that that is the case for some people here today. That they will receive it, they will believe it. And that they will know the resurrection life, the hope today. And they will know those fountains of living water for eternity as we see you face to face. Amen. Our final song.